and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward and this month we have an Opera Festivals special recorded live here at Chapel FM as part of the Leeds Opera Festival. Uh, we're joined by a live studio audience. In my notes it says Q cheer. Hey. Hey. And an esteemed <laughs> panel uh, comprising singer and director John Savonin. Hello, John. Hello. Uh, the director, Ella Marchman. Hello, Ella. Hiya. And director of the Water Parade Festival, Guy Withers. Hello, Guy. Hello. Thank you all very much for joining us today. Um, now, as I say, this is slightly different from our usual programming. It's going to be kind of a, a, an opera festival's special. Um, but we are going to cover some, just kind of very briefly, of the latest news from the opera world. There's a couple of things, uh, one in particular, that I didn't think we could, uh, we could kind of gloss over. Um, but let's start with um, kind of a, one of the lighter news stories recently. Uh, Stuart Murphy, who we'll be interviewing for the next episode of OperaCast, has written a column for the Evening Standard where he compared opera with Love Island. Um, now, there's an, there's an easy headline here you can see for, for George Osborne about comparing opera and, and Love Island. Um, but I think more interesting from an opera perspective, actually, were his comments about the new artistic director. Um, as you might know, English National Opera uh, don't have an artistic director at the moment. They're looking for a new one. In the article, he said, we are starting the search for our new artistic director, and it will be someone who um, looks at kind of how opera is outward-facing and how English National Opera needs to be outward-facing, someone who watches Sky Arts and BBC4 and knows theatre, opera and dance, but also someone who knows about I'm a Celebrity in the Marvel films. Um, appointing the right person is essential to ensure that people will continue to talk about our work with the same passion, obsession and love as they do with Fleabag, The Inheritance and Black Panther. Um, now I know that English National Opera have been doing a lot of things recently to try and kind of make it more accessible, reach kind of a wider uh, public. Um, I mean kind of Ella as a director, how much are you kind of thinking about what's going on in the, in the broader culture when you're kind of, you know, working on shows, putting them together, how much are you kind of thinking about the world outside of the opera bubble that we tend to kind of uh, live in most of the time? Of course I had to have the first question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for me, I guess opera really is about engaging with new audiences and it's about reinventing this kind of historical art form to be able to speak to us in the sense of now. I think we do, we can honour traditions, but I think also it's important for us to actually find different ways to, for these works to speak to us actually and for me when I'm creating something I'm always trying to look at essentially who my target audience is and also how I can engage with them so for example if I create a kids show it will be very different to how I would present something to a kind of very politically aware group of students so I think yeah it, it is always very different and I am always conscious of who our audiences are. Yeah and, and what about you John I know your kind of career as a, as a singer and director spans kind of many different forms of, of opera and musical theatre and kind of operetta? I mean, kind of how much are you kind of thinking about, again, what's kind of out there more broader culturally when you're, you're putting shows together? Well, I, I mean, Ella's just said uh, something interesting that, you know, she's quite rightly thinking about uh, the audience that she's targeting. And actually, sometimes uh, that's a very difficult thing to define. Uh, I, I found sometimes that I'm asked, uh, I've been doing some education work for Opera North in which I'm asked to create something which will suit um, uh, an audience like we have here today, uh, some school children um, on their own, or um, a, a fundraising event with all of the trustees of the company present, or a group of uh, refugees in a community centre. And it needs to basically cover 
all of those bases somehow. <laughs> so I think sometimes the challenge is how to make something that is going to uh, have, uh, cover a wide base uh, in a way that is going to be either adaptable for different audiences or is going to work for a very uh, uh, eclectic group of people that have come to one room, such as the Colosseum or the Leeds Grand Theatre, to see something uh, and that's going to touch everybody in some way. Yeah. And, and Guy, I think what was really interesting for me was that last point by Stuart where he says, you know, the, the right person is essential to ensuring that they'll, they'll talk about opera in the way that people talk about Fleabag, Black Black Panther and whatnot. Do you think opera audiences have that same sort of passion as those kind of, I don't know, you know, superhero fans or, or, or whatnot? Or are we just kind of more of a kind of a, a quieter, understated bunch? Or is there, is there something that opera's missing at the moment that doesn't kind of rile as much excitement in people? Uh, no, I think there's plenty of interest and passion in opera, in audiences and in artists. I've just come from the Edinburgh Festival, and I will say... Uh, I witnessed there a huge amount of uh, love for the art form that we, that we have a vocation in. Um, I guess if, you can, if you're comparing it to other media, specifically to film or Marvel or something like that, or Fleabag, um, that's readily available, uh, free, mainstream, uh, broadcast throughout the world. Um, and so, generally speaking, we're working with smaller audiences. And so what they ever do on a sort of global, national scale that can serve everybody, for me personally and for smaller companies, maybe not English National Opera, but for Water Perry or for other smaller companies, um, my focus, our focus should be, I think, on very specific communities and how we can engage them and their specific needs, niches, their environment, their history, their heritage, their community. And so how can we make something that they themselves have a sense of belonging or agency in? I wouldn't say that I feel connected to the Marvel movies, although they're great and I enjoy <laughs> them, but if a piece of work is made about my community or for a space that I know or for local artists, then there's a belonging there, there's, a, there's an ownership there that I think is very unique that opera and other art forms can serve. Do you think that the opera is able to... We talk about a lot on opera cast, kind of opera getting through into the mainstream... It often does kind of seem like an audience, a bubble. Um, and I think what this really broadly is going on, actually, can opera kind of reach those people that it kind of doesn't at the moment? Uh, it was really striking. I don't know if anyone saw the, the Pavarotti documentary. But it was a lot, obviously, about the three tenors. And, OK, look, that's not, you know, fully staged opera that we all <laughs> kind, of, kind of know and love. But it was a really amazing way of actually kind of getting this music out to a wider populace. I mean, is, that, is, is opera just going down kind of its own, its own path? It's an open question Opera to the panel. Opera has the potential <laughs> for all forms of superfans. I think even looking now, uh, who, people go to Wagner's um, theatre as a pilgrimage. There is this sense of occasion and, and kind of spectacle which fans will kind of commit to whatever they can to be there in the same way that, you know, people go and queue up outside these West End theatres for last-minute tickets. You know, mm. Fleabag sold out within something like eight minutes of the tickets going on sale. Opera has the potential to do that. It's just... For us now, it's finding those ways to harness our need for this consumption that we get from Netflix and other things and applying mm. it to our, the narratives of the stories that we tell. And I think a lot of it is actually kind of stripping back from the, some of the formalities about opera, some of the things that people find intimidating. And I think once we harness the, the essence of the potential of this art form, which can really kind of take us to a completely different level of being, that actually... We've, we've kind of got all the ingredients there to make that happen. Yeah. Well, it'll be really interesting to see who they, they go for. I wonder if mm. maybe they might go for someone outside of opera. 
given those comments. We'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I know their last artistic director, Daniel Kramer, I think he directed one opera or something like that before he got the job. Um, he didn't last uh, too long, but did some interesting things whilst he was there, so we'll, we'll see who they appoint. Um, I very much look forward to seeing their, I don't know, kind of Superman Don Giovanni or something in you know, <laughs> a, couple, a couple of years' time. Um, there's definitely one story that we, we couldn't get away from. It's, it's dominated um, the headlines, both in the cultural and mainstream press, and that's the news. Um, the accusations against Placido uh, Domingo um, being accused of uh, sexual, uh, sexually harassing a number of women in the 1980s, um, with some even reporting that they were pressurised into having affairs with Domingo um, or seeing their careers harmed. Um, now, a number of very notable people have come out in defence of Placido Domingo, including Anna Netrebko, Sonia Yoncheva, and uh, Adriana Gonzalez, uh, recent winner of Domingo's Operali competition, who we had on as a guest a couple of months ago. And uh, even last night, uh, he made his first appearance since the accusations came out and he received a standing ovation at the Salzburg Festival. Um, now, Ella, I, I know that you're um, involved a lot with Swapra. We've had Sophie Gilpin on um, recently talking about the issues of kind of women and, and parents in, in, in opera. I mean, how, how common do you think that these sorts of stories within opera are, whether recent or historical? Um, so, I am involved with Swapra, which is to do with supporting women and parents in opera. We, when we established ourselves, we thought that this whole Me Too campaign was an absolute minefield that we did not really want to get involved in without significant legal advice. Mm. Um, because a lot of the case, it's a he, he said, she said situation, which is very difficult actually to kind of draw conclusive evidence. So um, from personal experience, it, it is rife, but I cannot say for that situation. I, I have experienced it myself, and I know a lot of other women who have experienced different levels of um, harassment in the workplace, but, you know, it, it hasn't been something that we have necessarily felt confident in kind of pinpointing specific examples to as yet. And I think, so for that reason, we've sort of stepped away from this at the moment. Yeah. Um, what about kind of the thing, I know that a number of his, um, the opera houses in the US have kind of uh, dropped him whilst you know, investigations continue, but a lot of the European houses have kind of stuck with him. Um, I mean, Guy, hypothetically speaking, if, if, if you had Domingo coming to the Waterbury Festival next year, uh, I mean, surely there's, there's an argument for, you know, innocent until till proven guilty. Is that the argument that we're, we should well, be making? I mean, for sure that has um, significance. Everyone should uh, theoretically be innocent until proven guilty. And we have a, a legal system that should take people and, uh, through the system. And therefore, if they are guilty, they'll be found guilty. And, then, and that, that's how it should work. Um, ultimately, though, from my understanding of, of the situation regarding sexual harassment, especially historical, historical sexual harassment, is that it's very difficult to prove. Uh, it's very difficult to get to trial, um, and because there's very, very little evidence. Uh, and so, there, usually, my experience is that these things are true, but then end up not being prosecuted or, or dealt with properly. Um, so we're in this very grey area where, where do we go? How do we go forward? How do I make a decision to say, well, you haven't been uh, convicted of this crime. However, um, I feel personally I probably should believe the victims when they tell me this is an issue. And we know it's rife within the arts industries. Um, so it's very difficult. I mean, ultimately, I don't think Waterbury could afford Domingo, so I'm sure I'm fine. <laughs> but, um, but it's a very difficult ethical 
question, um, and I'm not quite sure there's a correct answer. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I think, you know, it's interesting because obviously in the case of, of Domingo and, and others who have, who have been accused of such, of such things, um, uh, it, it, it is very much a case of he said, she said. And I think one of the main things that we should obviously focus on uh, thinking about going forward is, is how to deal with situations that occur in the present day of a similar mm. nature. So um, uh, actually at Opera Holland Park, uh, where I was working recently, they had uh, a, a policy in which it was uh, said at the outset, if there is a problem that you are, if there's something that's happening that you are uncomfortable with, uncomfortable with, try to uh, have the conversation with the person right there and then to nip it in the bud and see if it was just a misunderstanding or if it's something that could be um, discussed without having to take it to uh, a, a wider, um, uh, more serious conversation. And I'm not saying that to say that uh, anything should be considered trivial at, at all. That is not what uh, I think they, they were saying either. But I think it's important for us to start to look at uh, our attitude to what is certainly still a continuing um, issue, especially within um, the, the theatre and the arts industries, um, and how we can look at, at, at the way that we address it now so that we can change um, the perception of what is considered uh, acceptable and what is and 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 also how we actually um, uh, address it head on in a way that will hopefully really change the culture um, uh, whether we can look to the past and actually make uh, any uh, uh, significant um, adjustments to what has happened previously uh, is, is another matter and a much, much harder one, I think, for us to address, though very serious, clearly. Yeah. Uh, what this does bring up as well is kind of a wider question as to kind of who has, has the kind of the power in, in opera and the arts, I suppose. You know, we're looking at a figure like Placido, who, yes, he's a singer, but he also uh, kind of runs or programmes a, a number of venues as a figure. He's very, very kind of in, in, important. Is... Do you think that opera is unique in, in individuals at particular houses or whatnot, in almost one person kind of holding too much power? Not necessarily talking about these sorts of allegations, but actually just generally, is there, is there kind of too much power on the individual within, within opera? I think, is there too much power on the individual in pretty much all uh, working environments <laughs> is probably the right question to ask, and the answer is probably yes. Yes, I mean, absolutely. If you, if you uh, guess, cross the pond and go to Hollywood, we, we see the same thing happening with Harvey Weinstein and other figures that you know, have a huge amount of control. Uh, so I think, as John said, I think it's about people with, in power uh, in organisations uh, as opposed to just in opera, although I think it's also right in opera as well. So. Yeah. I've been working in opera for 10 years, and... Actually, in this last decade, I've seen a real change in the industry, actually, from director as God to a much more democratic way of creating and making, and people want to have conversations now in a way that they didn't before. It, it, mm. it is so much less about the ego, actually, and I know there's still a lot that the industry can be doing to change itself, but I think, actually, opera's really making strong positive steps towards a more caring, mm. compassionate working environment already, is, especially in the UK, actually. Sorry. Uh, is my, my experience of that is also, also that. However, I find that more in the creative process rather than perhaps the organisational process. Mm. I think maybe in the rehearsal room, I definitely feel the idea that actors, performers, creatives have more any agency, and that's a wonderful thing in terms of creating a dialogue around making work together. However, I feel like 
organisationally, there still is the structures that, and maybe they're needed, maybe they're not needed, um, that very much feels like a, a quite a strict hierarchy with power at the top, perhaps. Mm. I don't know. I think, I think it, it's, in my experience, that's very much dependent on the particular organisation and the individual. Mm. I think uh, uh, it's, uh, it, it's partially to do with a generational thing in some cases, but I don't think, in my experience, that that is quite as uh, blanket um, uh, uh, in terms of its um, effect on, on the industry. Mm. Um, but I, I think that, Ellie, you, you're absolutely right that things are, are significantly changing. And, you know, I, I don't mind saying that uh, when I was a, a teenager, I, was, I myself was a victim of um, some uh, abuse, which was something that at the time I, I thought... Uh, and it was within the, the industry. And, I, and at the time, I, I even said to myself oh, yes, but it's obviously okay because he's someone that everybody looks up to and, and, ha and ha is in awe of. And it was only through, you know, uh, going to see a therapist uh, that I, I learned what that really was. And I think that as long as we're now becoming more um, woke to, these, uh, <laughs> to, these, to, to what uh, is actually happening, then it's, it is something that is, will ultimately be eradicated because we are he developing healthily in our working environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we will see how this progresses. I think one of the interesting things that we won't touch on is actually the divide that's, that's happened here between the US and, and Europe. And we, we see it in other cases as well, people like kind of Roman Polanski and maybe even someone like, someone like Woody Allen, where there's, there's a very definite divide between how Europe, how Europe and the US kind of uh, treats these, these sorts of things. Um, but we shall see how, how this particular case uh, plays out. Um, moving on to more of our broader festivals discussion then, uh, with the news that Opera Holland Park, somewhere that I know you know, you know very well, John, have announced their season for 2020. Uh, main stage uh, full productions of Rigoletto, Eugene Onyegin and The Merry Widow, and a double bill of Lavilli and Margot LaRouge by Delius. Um, now, Margot LaRouge is, I'm not sure it's been done since its premiere, but it's been sat on my shelf for many years. Um, it's uh, kind of Verismo, you know, something like Caviar Rusticana or um, Pagliacci. It's very full-blooded, you know, kind of uh, romantic people get stabbed in a cafe sort of, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, Sounds just like Love Island, I think. I, I, yeah, I think, it, I think if they set it on a, yeah, in a villa somewhere in Spain, it would go down very well at e and um, But again, you know, Opera Holland Park, you, they've really established themselves and going into the chat about festivals as not just one of the kind of uh, most kind of well thought of festivals, but just kind of in terms of their output generally, you know, Opera Holland Park really does seem to kind of use a pond, kind of hit it out of the park every, every season. Is there something, do you think, special about what they do there or the way that they kind of run things, John? Yes, I mean, I think that one thing from being, working within the company itself is that it, it, there is a real sense of, uh, of family. Uh, they, they really uh, thrive on asking people to work hard and, uh, and play hard, essentially, you know, as in, as in really band together as a community of people. And they really want you to feel valued as a member of that team, including throughout the entire um, company, right through to uh, the chorus and to the ladies who um, put on the wigs and, and, and so on. It, it's, a, it's a very um, uh, welcoming and, and inclusive environment. Uh, and I think that that's uh, something very, very uh, special and particular to Holland Park. Mm. Um, so going on to, to festivals then, I mean, let, let's, let's start with you, Guy. Let's start with the very uh, 
Simple, I was going to say simple. Uh, the very kind of uh, obvious question we need to ask, what is an opera festival? You, you've, you've kind of started one or helped to start one in the Waterbury Festival. Yes. What are we on about when we talk about them? It's a very good question. <laughs> because when we started the Waterbury Opera Festival, I was very keen on trying to emulate experiences that I'd had at other arts festivals specifically, but not opera festivals. Um, and that immediately was about programming. Uh, when we say even Opera Holland Park as a festival, uh, or Glyndebourne, effectively it's a season of work um, that's quite spread out, and ultimately you spend one day doing the thing you're doing. And what's different from, say, at Edinburgh Fringe or any other arts festival is that you, they would curate a number of different events, including opera or the art form that they're focusing on, um, so that the thing becomes the place and the festival itself becomes full of content and people and community and conversations. And so um, I guess what's key to hopefully our opera festival, but also generally I think opera festivals going forward is that it's about um, a concentrated sort of explosion of our art form um, centered around one place that brings people together. And that's hopefully different, I think, from a season of work which is curated in a space, either at a house or, or somewhere else, for instance. Mm. I think you've, you've tapped into my agenda because my, my absolute question there was, is, is there a difference between a festival and just someone that puts on a summer season? Um, oh, kind of, what, what do you think, Ella? I mean, what, what kind of do you think of, you think of, kind of a, a, a festival or kind of a season? Is there something different, as kind of Guy was, was saying there? When I think of festival, I think of a party. So, <laughs> yes. in terms of that, I feel the strongest thing in terms of festival for me with opera is that it's something that's about the experience more so than a season. I also kind of compared it to a little school analogy, I guess, that, you know, these, these other places that operate throughout the year are more with a lot more kind of government funding as well, feel more like the, the state schools in a way, even though I know they're reliant on a lot more, on, a, on the government funding and public money as well, private money. And then these other festivals that are much more kind of private and exclusive are essentially the private boarding schools that happen in different pockets of the, of the country. So, so are opera festivals for the posh people, essentially? I think there's a big change against that now, but I do feel like in the UK, potentially opera festivals have historically been associated more with class. I know that you guys here are doing something very much in a city and I do a lot of work with Copenhagen Opera Festival and this opera festival exists within Copenhagen. It pops up in all the spaces around Copenhagen. It is almost entirely government funded and it is created, it, their mission statement is they are creating opera for the people hmm. and it has to be for everyone. So it, there is a bigger scope and they're less kind of arts council it's got more commitments to the, the broader public, whereas actually these opera festivals can be much more specific, but I think in a way that's a great thing because you can choose what your opera festival is going to be about and you can really tailor it and explore mm. something mm. that speaks to your heart. So well, I, I think we should celebrate them. One of the things that's interesting just about it, you know, opera festivals in this country especially is that because often they are located... Uh, in the middle of the country somewhere, you, you uh, inevitably it's it's going to become an experience uh, because you're likely to go there in the afternoon, take advantage of the lovely uh, fields that are by the theatre, probably have a picnic um, and so forth. And I know I I, I sort of um, fantasise about opera festivals gradually uh, becoming more and more like, as you say, you know, 
uh, Glastonbury and, and so forth, where you could go and there Different are tents, lines yes. and lines of, of tents where you could get your glass of Prosecco or you could get, your, uh, you could get some food, uh, maybe Kebab. something themed to do with the opera, for example. <laughs> but yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, a Bohème kebab or yeah, something. And, um, but, but that then... Uh, you might also be able to to stay over and, and camp and then see something the next day and that it's it's a, a really immersive experience with lots and lots of fringe events going on around the, the main stage productions which I think would be very exciting and would maybe contribute to uh, making that step towards uh, opera festivals being um, uh, something of a destination for a younger generation. Mm. But I think that's what you guys are doing really well. So yes. Walter Parry actually already during the day, you, I mean you can explain it better than I do, but the way that you programmed it, it feels like if you come there for the day you'd, you don't come for the evening opera, you come mm. for however much you want to do. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, so to, going back to so the idea of not programming a season, programming a festival, we have a four day festival. It doesn't feel like a very long time. Um, and I, I know uh, David with, with Northern Opera too, that, that yours is very concentrated as well. And I think that's a wonderful thing. It feels like you've got a, a, a buzz and that it, it's a few days filled with content and opportunity and participatory things and activities. So as Ella very briefly said, yes, from 11 a.m. till 10 p.m. there's something on at, at Waterproof Opera Festival. Um, and what's so lovely about that is you, in the morning, will have a family audience who come to see a children's show. Great. And then they will sort of merge with the next audience who will come and see a talk at 12 p.m and then there's another matinee show and then maybe there's a workshop uh, and then maybe there's a free concert something that people didn't know was there but then they turned up early for the evening show and so what's wonderful about that is people have come from afar ultimately in their car or by public transport which is always an issue with rural opera festivals mm. um, if you're going to come that far they can come for a whole day and ultimately if we can try and keep the cost affordable for the general public uh, or um, put on a number of things for free, um, then their experience is so varied and hopefully full, and not only are they able to enjoy the, uh, the opera or the musical theatre that, that they have, but they can take part, they can have an experiential uh, experience. And you're uh, taking care of uh, different kinds of audiences, which absolutely. is uh, something we talked about a bit earlier. Absolutely key. So it, not just sort of uh, different age groups, but people uh, with different interests, um, and people who want to see different sorts of events, whether they want to come and say take part in a workshop or just see a talk or you're there to see a big opera that's also fine um but that's very exciting as i get up in the morning and and i'm there at water Perry, and from as i say from 11 a.m to 12 uh, to 10 p.m um i just see people arrive and leave and enjoy the site and it's much more than the opera and sometimes we forget it's about the opera because actually mm -hmm. it's about the experience and yeah. it also feels like if you've taken the day off work then you've got the purpose of being somewhere mm. my yeah. biggest hang-up was that i worked for buxton festival for eight years as an assistant director staff director did a variety of different things and people would always you get to the summer season and people would always call you up and go oh do you want to go watch this at Glyndebourne and do you want to go see this at Garsington and you go oh yes and then they go but what time do you finish rehearsals and oh we don't finish until half five in London and then by that point you you can't go and see an opera there because they're all starting at half four far half five so actually if you w were taking the time off to go and see something something like Water Perry you'd feel like you've got a real purpose for your day yeah so I think what you were saying before, Alina, festivals are either kind of packed festivals or they take kind of the, the festive part of it and make it the occasion, you know, mm. uh, as you're saying, John, you know, you have your picnic and whatnot and it might not be lots of varied things, but it's, it's an occasion. I think that's what we tend to think about. The, I mean, the other word that I always think about that goes with opera festival generally is summer. 
Um, I mm. mean, pretty much exclusively here in the UK, opera festivals take place during the summer, which means that there's a rather packed three months. Um, usually things uh, down in the, the south of England, but we'll come on to that later. Um, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be better if they just kind of spread the love across the year rather than us having so many things at one time? I mean, what's kind of the point in there being, for example, Grange, Grange Park, Holland Park, Garsington, all at the same time? Um, isn't it, doesn't that just kind of hark back to, you know, upper-class people with time on their hands looking for something to do in the summer rather than actually kind of having a, a wider purpose? I, I guess so. However, I would look to somewhere like Wexford, which is an autumn opera festival in, in Ireland, and it works very well for them. Uh, um, and they found a little niche, and they are the, pretty much the, uh, the autumn opera festival in, in Europe. So. And it's a great gig to get, because then you can do two summer festivals <laughs> Absolutely. as well, go. and Absolutely. you just drag out your summer. Um, so I, I'm not sure whether it, it has become a sort of country club summer uh, get-together social event or whether it's just because that's when the weather's the nicest. <laughs> I, think, I think it's the latter, probably. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, to a degree. Uh, and for us, at least, at Waterbury, we programme work throughout our site. It, it's got gardens. We haven't got a theatre. We have an amphitheatre, open air. And we have gardens and we have, yes, a ballroom, but effectively no traditional theatre spaces. So all of our work is outside. So I, I wouldn't necessarily want to do something in, the Febru in February. Um, although that's a nice challenge. Maybe that's worth exploring as, as a thing. But ultimately, um, audiences love yes, outside and, stuff. And, and, and actually, a, a Christmas uh, opera festival, which you know, was akin to a Christmas market, where you can you know, get your mulled wine and, and what have you, and uh, mm. there's some live music on a bandstand and, uh, and that sort of thing, followed up by uh, watching a, a performance of Bohem yeah. by, by a Christmas tree, would, would actually be something that people in this country would enjoy because we also enjoy Christmas markets and that sort of It'll thing. It would be a lot better than the Leeds Christmas market if we had the opera. Oh, I quite like the Leeds Christmas market, but that's just me. We won't get into that. There, I think there is also another, there's another thing, though, that because in the UK we have less kind of ensemble-led companies and less, um, and less of that kind of ethos where you can then take a kind of paid holiday in the summer for singers and freelancers, it's essential to keep on working through those months. And that is exactly what these jobs actually provide. They provide work for people to keep on doing the, this great art that they're that they're dedicating their lives to. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, your, your point about your, uh, wouldn't it be better if we spread the love across the years so that they weren't all happening at the same time. But at the same time, there is the demand for them all whilst they're all going on at the same time. Uh, I know, you know, if, even Holland Park, for example, added performances this year just gone of Ballo in Mascara and their double bill of Segreto di Susanna and Iolanta, none of which are, are considered necessarily mainstream titles, but clearly there is demand for, for the opera festivals, um, even with them all running at the same time. So following on from that then, what, how do they kind of fit into that broader opera ecology? You, you mentioned that artists, okay, not, not need to do something in the summer, but it's a, it's a good opportunity after the main seasons have finished to kind of take up work there. How do you ever think about those festivals and how they relate to, you know, Opera North, Royal Opera, or is that, is that not really a question that you think is needs answering or how do they kind of link they, they it's interesting because they do all run still with the seasonal structure so opera north for example have an autumn season and then they have a winter season which essentially is january through to the end of march and then they might have something in the summer um uh, or, or in the spring as they as, as they as they call it and then um 
uh, and in, within those seasons themselves, you're still running uh, a, a structure of events which are three or uh, two or three productions that are rehearsed at the same time or overlapping and then opening roughly at the same time overlapping and then they're all running uh, concurrently until, until they finish three or four months later. So there's a similarity to the, the structure of the events that the opera companies in the UK take on. It's just um, the, first thing, the first observation to make, I think. Mm. I think it's a, it's a, you can't see what I'm doing, but I think it's kind of very <laughs> multi-layered and they kind of fit side by side and cross over each other because, for example, the, the quality at these opera festivals is, is kind of incomparable. It's, it's on the same level to the Royal Opera House, E&O, Garsington, Glyndebourne. I mean, one of my favourite shows I saw this year was at Water Perry. You know, these, things are do, these festivals are doing great work, but also what they are offering is opportunities for young artists as well out of the college term times to either get experience of doing roles or continue the training as well. And then people from the other major companies come along and watch. So it, it becomes a feeder mechanism. And it, it, in terms of that, it's fundamental to keep on evolving our kind of operatic climate within the UK. I, th I think it's very telling, actually, what you said. I think it's very true that um, opera festivals serve a purpose, actually, for many singers, creatives, directors, um, to sort of get a, get a foot in the door and to start to climb the ladder to getting somewhere like E&O or the Royal Opera House. Um, and uh, going back a little bit as well, because it's in the summer, we have the free time, the singers do, the creatives do, but also the audiences do as well. So, you know, a family audience wouldn't necessarily be able to come uh, in September because the kids are in school um, or whatever. So in a way, I guess maybe going back a little bit is why we're all drawn to this summer season is because we have time, we want to spend it together, and it's warm outside. So it sort of feels perfect to have something there for the artists and for the audiences. Mm. Mm. Let's talk about this geographical disparity. And look, this isn't just about festivals. This is about opera in general. But, you know, there's festivals mm. we've mentioned, I think, you know, sort of north of, I don't know, Nottingham. Mm. There's Buxton and there's, and there's you, us here, here in Leeds. <laughs> and there's a long way to Inverness. Yeah. Um, is, is, I know it's, a, it's a, again, a wider question, I suppose, outside of festivals, but is that... Is that a, a problem? Are we, you know, there's lots of great things happening, but are we lavishing our kind of attention in, in the same places? Yes. Um, I think it's a, a very, it's a sort of can of worms here, really. But this <laughs> is a very broad issue about going, about how people get introduced to music and theatre at school and about social mobility and about investment in arts and in councils and that sort of stuff. So I think it's a deeply rooted thing. Uh, that's culturally in, in the UK. Um, I mean, in terms of Waterbury, I, it just happened to be that it was in Oxfordshire. I, if I'd found a site, or if it happened that the place was in Yorkshire, then I think I would have so still... There's an amphitheatre at Temple Newsom in Leeds. Oh, is there? Oh, oh there we go. Um, so so I, I think the passion would have been the same for that sort of space. Maybe we should be aware that um, there is certainly oversaturated market of opera festivals in around London, like an hour from London. Um, but, but that also means it's, it's essentially where the audiences are. That's it's, true. it's a smart move. Yeah, for, for sure. But I don't think anybody necessarily, well, I hope people don't think of, ah, we all hit a huge audience if we make a festival here. For me, surely it's about place and art and, and heritage or whatever, for, uh, reasons for creating something. But ultimately, yes, there aren't many festivals of any sort 
well, mainly opera, but music and, and theatre towards the north. Um, and that is an issue, I'm not sure how we solve it, but it, I think it's deeply rooted. There is a new country house opera starting up north next summer. Um, Manor, Manor Opera, yeah. Manor Opera, yeah. which oh, will be yes. the, I think, it's, I think it's the first, don't quote me on it, I think it's the first country house opera certainly up this far up north. Um, and I think, but interestingly, I've, I've been a little bit involved with some of the conversations with it, and I think what's, what the telling thing is, is actually there's a lot more involvement with that, with kind of the local councils and kind of government grants again, and then in comparison, if you think about how something like Glyndebourne is funded, where mm. they're, they're, they're very proudly not at all reliant on any, uh, essentially, government funding, that the, it is a little bit of a tell about what the audiences are like in the areas. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting point. I mean, about how festivals are funded is another very interesting discussion, as you say, often kind of privately funded against the, the year-round kind of public-funded companies. I mean, John, as, as kind of a, an artist, how much do you think it's the artist's responsibility to go, you know what, actually, there's nothing going on in Carlisle. That would be the, you know, that would be the responsible sort of place for us to do something. How much does the artist just go, you know what, audiences, all the artists that I want to work with are in London, that's the place that we'll, we'll do things? Well, I think... I think it's just very much dependent on individuals with the right initiative and and uh, in the right places to to take initiative to create something new in, in a new um, in, in a new town and and I think that you know you're a great example of somebody that's really taking the ball by the horns there and, and trying to change the the face of things up here uh, as as the the uh, manor manor opera are, are, uh, are starting to do. I think. Um, I think that it's very hard to start anything up, as, as I know, as, as, as Guy knows, with um, starting up your own uh, uh, company and your own outfit. Uh, but I think that uh, if you have the, the nous and you feel like you see an opportunity that could be taken, then uh, I think it's absolutely something that we should do because historically artists have changed uh, the face of art, uh, of course, in opera particularly, uh, that, uh, and have changed what we expect from what we see on the stage. And you know, to a certain extent, yes, it is absolutely uh, up to us to um, to to make some some changes and keep developing our artistic world. Okay. Um, final thing here on on festivals. Then, if we gaze into our crystal ball. Festivals seem to be growing and growing, the ones that already exist and new ones popping up, whereas we've got companies like English National Opera reducing their seasons uh, and often, I think the, the chorus going off to the summer festivals now, now even. Is, is the summer or shorter season going to be the New York norm? In 20 years' time, is that going to be, in fact, I haven't done the stats, but it may be the majority opera output at the moment. It happens in three months of the year. Is that what we're going to be in 10, 20 years' time? Maybe. I feel like audiences of all sorts are looking to more experiential activities, whether that's secret cinema or um, uh, um, like locked room sort of thing, escape rooms or whatever. That people want to um, go and do something that is more than just maybe the art form, perhaps. So maybe the opera festival rural thing it is is growing in interest that way. Um, 
potentially. Also, it serves a, a rural audience. I mean, London or metropolitan areas can only serve so many people. So I think in, in, a, in a good way, if you're going to do spreading out and, and further north and further out, that you're reaching communities that wouldn't normally get there, then that's also great. So who knows, maybe. It seems ever more popular. I mean, we're only a few years old and there's more festivals and they seem to be thriving. So obviously there's the need for them. So it would appear that might be the case. Yeah. And thank you for giving me the idea of an opera escape room for the next Leeds Opera Festival. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> that is happening. Um, I lied. I have one more question. Each of the panellists, um, favourite festival moments, whether you've been performing or you've been watching, whether it's been a, a pre-show talk or something on, something on stage, what's any festival you can choose? I'll start with... Ella's trying to ignore me. Ella. No, no, no. <laughs> still thinking. I can start if you like. Uh, I, I, um, I saw some of a school's matinee uh, performance of uh, ballet in Mascara mm. at Holland Park this uh, this summer, and uh, the experience of watching a about a thousand school children getting on their feet and screaming their lungs out genuinely for what they had seen at the end uh, was a very. Um, uh, hopeful uh, image for the future of our industry and very, very touching indeed. I, I was there as well. So I, I've, I felt that and that's probably one of my, my most um, emotional and um, sort of closely held experiences of my, my life in, in opera, let alone at festivals. Um, but linked to that, I think, in terms of Waterbury is uh, families or, or um, generations of people uh, arriving at a site and experiencing something new and, and, and sort of uh, taking it into themselves and um, having great ownership of it and sort of just um, and witnessing that as a festival director is, is really wonderful. Um, welcoming people to your site and to your art and um, them thriving in it is a really wonderful thing. I think children are such a, a, a wonderful audience uh, to, to, to um, a litmus test for what, for what we make, I think, aren't yeah, they? Because, absolutely. of course, their, their response is completely unfiltered. Uh, and that can be absolutely um, spellbinding and uh, incredibly rewarding, I think. Mm. You've had a long time now, Ella. Mine's actually to do with children as well. Um, <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> I've just been out in Copenhagen, Opera Festival, and we put on this big uh, magic flute in Danish, an adaptation, and we had it was a free thing for people to attend, so we had something like 550 people in the audience. And to see everybody ra waving their hands, trying to conjure up the fire trials. And, you know, and it didn't matter what age people were. There were grandparents there with their kids, and everyone was just doing it and joining in and sharing in this performance. And I think that was so magical to actually see that everybody can get something out of the, the same op opera experience. How wonderful to take the magic flute back to a, a, a performance style and atmosphere as well that was maybe more akin to its so original. How it originally was, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. Uh, we're going to open it to see if there's any questions from people in the audience. I can see one hand. Have we, have we, uh, are we able to pick it up? Yeah, fantastic. Just go ahead. Thank you. Um, my question is, why do so many of the opera companies perform the same opera in the same season? Now, I used to think that it was coincidence, but the only reason I can think to, uh, to, to make it reasonable is lack of funds, so that you've got enough people, for example, to sing Figaro if someone goes down ill. Uh, but it's not very helpful for the audiences who really want to see as many different operas as possible. 
I, I, I thought about this as well before because it, it sometimes does seem to be a bit of a mystery, I think. But I, I think that it could be a number of things. One, I think that for a lot of the, the national opera companies, people perhaps unlike yourself who I, I think go to see a lot of the different companies perhaps don't, and so they only go to the one that is nearest them, so it doesn't necessarily affect them. Something else I thought of, though, is that uh, if a company is performing uh, the magic flute and, and lots of other companies are doing the same, there is then uh, perhaps a social awareness of the title um, that, is, that goes on, perhaps even subliminally, that, that uh, means that people might have picked up on it and thought, I've heard of that, I will go to e and and watch it, or I'll go to w and and watch it. And, and whether or not that's intentional or not, it's got to have some kind of effect on people's awareness of the material and therefore lack of, uh, a lack of a sense of unknown and therefore perhaps a willingness to try it if they haven't tried it before. Yeah, statistically in opera, people tend to go to titles that they recognise. Um, mm. Casper Holton said when they did the John Foss adaptation at the Opera House, for, in order for them to be able to run that new commission which Graham Vic directed, they had to offset it by programming extra traviatas because they knew that if they put that on that they would be guaranteed to get bums on seats. So it, it's partly an economical thing, I think, in opera that people know that existing titles will be financially more of a secure market for them. There is a marketing thing, isn't there? There's a marketing uh, 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 saying that you need to have seen something three times before you'll buy it, uh, whether it's on the poster or on the bus or whatever it might be, and you know, perhaps there's something in there. Yeah, I have to agree with what John and Ella have said, that I wish that we could programme the most interesting, contemporary, obscure works that we ourselves know are wonderful and that we think audiences really love, but ultimately it's a challenge to convince anybody, let alone if they're an opera uh, audience member, to um, believe in what you're doing, come to somewhere. If it's rural, like Water Parade, they've got to drive, so it's a big commitment, and to see something. So ultimately, yes, names get bums on seats, and as Ella says, you have to offset doing uh, a work that you really believe in that probably won't sell as well with doing something like the Magic Flute. That's just the way it is. Um, I think we can gradually sort of um, encourage our audiences to be more... Um, sort of adventurous with, with the work they see um, and maybe not just go to something because it says Mozart or Rossini or Puccini on it. But of course now uh, we would say going to see a Britain opera would seem quite mainstream where it could yeah, absolutely. really wasn't until really recently. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully that will be something that continues to change uh, as we have you know, a new opera that's uh, just been written that might become part of our standard repertoire very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and connected to that, I think, also is if the music is unknown, if it's new, contemporary, then usually uh, I find uh, librettists and composers uh, find stories people know, either that's folk tales or uh, fairy tales or just an example. We, we recently did Mansfield Park by uh, Jonathan Dove. Now everyone loves Jane Austen. And so people already knew the experience they were going to have. They already connected to that. They felt they could give themselves to that. And they didn't know what the music was going to sound like. Thankfully, it's really good. Um, but I think there needs to be something for them to hang on to, whether that's a theme or music or something for them to go, yes, I'm interested to see that. And sometimes it's very difficult when you say, I'm going to program this very obscure opera um, when you don't have an audience you think necessarily is going to come and see it. I think it's different if you're ENO or if you're Opera Holland Park, for instance. Opera Holland Park has a great history of programming and curating uh, unknown Verisma works. 
So everyone knows, if they program that, that it's going to be amazing, they found a gem, they're going to do it very well. Um, but until you develop an audience that know that and that trust you, uh, I think it's hard to get away from Figaro and, ma and Magic Flute, to be honest. I think to an extent, though, actually, there are scheduling meetings that happen between That's the major true. companies yeah, as do. well. Yeah. So yeah. This I think it's fair to say it doesn't really seem to function. There is a, I think it's the, the National, Opera, National Opera Organising Committee, or NUC. Yes. Yeah. Um, but last year we managed to have, what was it, four, five traviatas between Scottish, Welsh, Opera North, Opera. That's not the rarest. I mean, and, and Magic Flute as well, lots of them this summer. What was really interesting, what happened recently, was a lot of Katja Kabanovas by Janacek. Yeah, with three at the same time. Yeah, at the same time. Which, you know, but it's a great work. Some pleased people are seeing it. So Yeah. Uh, and I, I think after what you've said, the financial is, 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 is definitely something. And is, I think yeah. with the... But I think sometimes companies don't take enough of a risk and we've seen you know you know for example at, at, at opera north you've got the greek passion coming up which i think is fair to say has less performances not because it's any um worse than um, travia uh, bohem which is coming later on in the season but there's a financial reality there that if we want to do that then great but we need a bohem to kind of help us yes i think you know it, it, bohem's the thing that might get the new audience members through the door or the seasoned opera go through the door and then they might read something about the Greek passion or have particularly enjoyed their evening and come to see that. There's clearly an element of that in all programming, as we've said now. Um, on the Greek passion, though, I think you know, it, it, it's a, it is a remarkable piece and uh, it, it's focused specifically on the issues faced that feel very current now around asylum seekers and uh, refugees uh, and, and really, we, we had a very interesting session, in fact, the other day with, with two ladies who came, one, one who was an asylum seeker and one who was a refugee. And uh, it was uh, very, very moving. And it really uh, uh, woke us all up to uh, the uh, extremity of the difficulties that they face in coming into a new country. Um, and the opera focuses on lots of those issues. And I think stands a chance of uh, really um, uh, moving people in, and, and hopefully starting a, a, a conversation within our industry that really desperately needs to be had in this country and in Europe. Mm. So, so there's the plug for the Greek passion of yep. an author season, which you can see John in. Um, but I think kind of just kind of finally on this, this point, there is, again, going back to festivals specifically, I suppose there is something that a, a large... Um, publicly funded organisation can do in order to maybe take a bit of a risk and then programme the Bohems to cancel it. Whereas if you're a summer festival season reliant on high ticket prices, people turning up for their picnics and champagne and whatnot, um, then there's a reason why the same works keep keep coming back. I mean, with, with Northern Opera Group and the Leeds Opera Festival, obviously everything we do is weird and wonderful. And I know our board members, some of who are here, sometimes despair at the weird ideas I, I kind of come up with. But it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to persuade people to come along when they don't know what it is. Um, but we'll keep, we'll keep pushing away to it and we'll see if we can persuade some some other people to... Gradually, gradually, I think it is. We're, we're not going <laughs> to immediately program no more Mozart ever, but I think gradually, gradually, if we can introduce people to more works, then they might buy it, and, and we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Uh, I think we can do one more question, if there's anything else. Yes? Uh, it's, it's more of a comment which I'd be interested in other people's views on. Um, going back to the can of worms about um, geographical uh, kind of separation as far as opera and, and opera festivals are concerned, what I'm really interested in is things like uh, the Buxton Festival, which obviously performs in the, in the North, rehearses in London, mm -hmm. which is 
it seems slightly at odds with perhaps what the festival might be able to achieve if it's bringing up into a different area. Certainly when I started out as a singer 12 years ago, it was all about going to London and making a fortune um, and failing rapidly. And, um, uh, but it's less like that now. There's, there's more of a mass exodus out of London. So I, I kind of wondered whether the panel kind of experienced that themselves. Is there a kind of move away from London? Yes, I, mean, I, I think that in terms of the rehearsal situation there, I can only imagine a lot of this is to do with the location of where a lot of the people who are rehearsing live. Um, and I think that that's, that's uh, a decision a lot of companies will make. But, for example, I just rehearsed something for the Gilburn Sutherland Festival, which is based in Harrogate, and we actually rehearsed in Manchester because they asked the company... Uh, where would you prefer, where is nearer to where you are? And over 90% of them said, Manchester, please. So it moved. Uh, and I think that you know, it, that's a conversation that might well be worth having uh, with other uh, northern or, or upwards of London companies to see whether there's uh, some changes that should be made there. But uh, that's, that's my experience uh, most recently. Yeah, I, I think from the uh, Northern Opera Group perspective, it probably would be cheaper for us to rehearse in London, but I think part of what I enjoy about having a company based in Leeds is not just getting audiences to come here, but it's actually getting artists to come here. You know, we have a lot of artists that come and rehearse and they've never been to Leeds before, mm -hmm. and on the day off that I occasionally give them, they, they can go to the Dales, they can, you know, do all these sorts of things. I think there's, and again, talking about festivals, there's something nice about not only having a festival of audiences, but a festival of artists. And so mm -hmm. it's, I really like kind of being able to bring people to, you know, to a place and they get to experience it as as well, and I think everyone has a nicer time because of it. Yeah, it's the, like having a big family around for a yeah. holiday, isn't it, yeah. actually? It's like if you go to any of those festivals in France, that's, that's exactly what happens, is that you're, you're living and breathing with each other, but then a different kind of... Uh, it feels like a different kind of work is made, something mm -hmm. that's very personal and very connected with, with everybody there, a different kind of immersive experience that people are looking for when they go to these festivals that can happen on both sides of the table. Waterbury is about... 50 minutes to an hour away from London, so ultimately we have to rehearse in London. Um, but uh, we could easily say to all our artists, you travel up to the site every day and perform and come back again. Um, but what's so wonderful about what, what we're able to do is that the, the house itself can seat about 90 people. And so uh, once you've rehearsed in London for a number of weeks, we then go up in a residency, a bit like choir camp, which I, I used to do, but I'm sure many, many of us are aware of that sort of residency way. And you'll stay in the bed and every morning and get up and have breakfast and, and lunch together and dinner together. And then for the first time you have a conversation with the stage manager or a young artist or the assistant director or somebody that you would never do before. And so that sense of family, that sense of community, that sense of coming together and making work on a site um, is really wonderful. So I absolutely take your point about getting out of London. I think it's happening. I mean, um, and making work at a site in a place um, allows the artist to, I guess, be surrounded by that and help that infuse the work they make. And I think it's not just us as well, it's the Arts Council as well. Mm. They're funding, they're, they're kind of funding 90% of stuff, new stuff coming to them is out of London because mm -hmm. there is a focus to try and decentralise it a little bit. Look at, like, what the BBC have done. They've moved essentially up to Salford now. So I think the, the I mean, actually, you've moved out of London. I've moved out of London. Guy, you still live in London. I'd but I think, I, just an example <laughs> on this table, actually, yeah. only a quarter of the people sat at this yeah. table live in London. And I think that shows the way that art is developing and that we are now looking beyond that 
But I think a letter to Buxton, for example, questioning that. I think the thing is, a lot of these companies will just do things in the way that they've done things already yeah. because it's just a pattern that works. I, and I don't think that, I mean, I've worked for Buxton for eight years and I had never asked that question. And then now I'm going, oh, well, why didn't we do that? Mm. But so, I mean, the, 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 as you said, there is the practical that most people still live in London, the cost of bringing people up, putting them up, mm. and hopefully they're not having to sleep 10 to a floor or something like that. But actually, you know, having kind of decent, decent conditions, it's, you know. But do people still need to live in London, though, if more companies took a point of mm. kind of rehearsing closer to their work, actually, would there be that necessity to kind of put the higher living costs as well? Would it actually be a more sustainable way of working for people? Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Yeah. I think it's a collective responsibility, though, to, for, for everyone to do, to every company to do that. Um, so it's hard. And also all auditions are in London as well. I mean, Yeah, I mean, we were talking to one of our festival singers was saying that the reason she still is so close to London is that she is often having to pop in for a 10-minute audition. Yeah. Now, try doing that if you live in Leeds and have to get a two-hour or an odd train to do 10 minutes. Do you audition in Leeds when you audition for your festival? We audition in Leeds, yeah. and then we go around and see as many shows as possible yeah, from around the country yeah, yeah. Um, to try and see people. But yes, we rehearse in Leeds, we audition people in Leeds, because Leeds is the best place. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting there because of course then the person who lives in London has to come up to these to audition and there's, there's, it's a, the reverse problem it, it's, it's always going to be a balancing act and it's great that you travel around uh, to different cities so that you can pick up people along the way, X-Factor style as you were saying um, earlier I mean something that we're, that we're trying to do is, is actually collaborate with more northern companies to do audition days where ten companies will see people at the same time so if you are a singer coming up you're not just seeing us, but you're seeing lots of people. Um, that's the, 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 the problem is that most companies are, are very, very small and you know, don't necessarily kind of have the, the time or resource to be able to kind of necessarily kind of, uh, uh, do that. But yeah. again, it's that, as you said, bit by bit. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. I'm sure if you've got any more questions, um, I'm sure they'll stay around for a cup of tea afterwards. Um, but we are going to finish with a little quiz, which is why you have pen and paper. Oh, oh right. This is why we have our... <laughs> Ta-da! Um, now, my answers, yeah. it is, it's pretty fiendishly difficult, I'm not going to lie. Um, so you can play in pairs if you want to. What we're going to do is I've got nine questions. <laughs> Each of them have a numerical answer. So if you, get, if you get it right, you'll get five points. I'll also give you a margin of error, and if you get it within the margin of error, you can have two points. Okay? So write down... The answer to the questions that you think it is, and I'll read them out at the end. Um, and whoever wins, um, we're going to do what we're going to do: two tickets to the headline production of next year's Leeds Opera Festival, which hasn't been announced, but it'll be great. Ooh, um, ooh thank you. <laughs> so eyes down. Question number one: What year was the first Glyndebourne Opera Festival? They're all they're all festival-related questions. You'll be unsurprised to hear. It was on my notes for today. The year of the first Glyndebourne Festival, okay? That's wrong. And, I, and I'll, I'll give you a, well, this isn't really a clue, but for your uh, two points, if you don't get it quite right, I'm allowing three years either way. Okay. Question two. The number of attendees at the 2017 Opera Holland Park Festival, so five points for a correct answer, two points if you get it 5,000 people either way. So it should give you a, kind of a rough idea of the margin of error that I'm, I'm allowing. So the number of people that attended the 2017 Opera Holland Park Festival. 
Question three. Wait, wait, wait. He's having to write down all the zeros, basically. No, no. Decimal point. Carry the two. Oh, I can, I, we've got number of attendees times performances times shows. This is, this is complicated. Inside parts. knowledge there from no, 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 I, I wish I could remember, but it, it's, it's a bit of a guess, but it, it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> I won't make the panel reveal how many points they've got at the end. Okay. Okay. Question three. The cost of a ticket, there's one ticket price, to Iford Arts' current production of the Elixir of Love. The cost of a ticket. The margin of error for two points is £20 either way. So the cost of a ticket to Iford Arts, current production of the Elixir of Love. £20 either way, we'll get you two points. One of them, either the gala or that was that price. What did you say? Question four. The Tete Tete Festival um, programmes new operas every year. Can you tell me how many shows were at this year's Tete Tete Festival? Oh. For two points, you can have five either way. Loads. Loads, yeah. <laughs> Not that many, yet. Like a numerical <laughs> really? value on loads. Really? Really? Loads of stuff. Shows? Productions? Yeah. It's like three weeks. Yes, In it... Individual, not, not performances, individual, individual uh, events. I might uh, take that down So there. if something has six shows, that just counts as one. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> 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 I've gone to the extreme end then. Um. Okay. Neville Holt Opera is, uh, again, one of the few... Well, I'll say Midlandsy-based um, opera festivals. They've just had a beautiful new theatre, which I think has won one of the, the Reba um, mm. Architecture Awards. Um, how many people does that theatre seat? For two points, you can have 60 seats either way. So how many people does Neville Hall Opera's new theatre seat? Next question, which I think is number six. Grange Park Opera love telling people how close they are to London. <laughs> <laughs> how many miles is Grange Park Opera from London? For two points, you can have five either way. Pretty much on every document, it will tell you how close it is to London. <laughs> how many miles I, uh, is it to London, according to them? <clears throat> okay, next question. The next two questions, we're going international. So the Salzburg Festival is a huge, world-renowned uh, classical and opera festival that takes place in Austria every year. What is, now this is a really difficult question, what is the estimated value to the local economy of the Salzburg Festival? You can have 20 million euros either way. Oh, wow, I wasn't going that high. For two <laughs> points. So I'll give you a clue, it's a lot of money. What is the estimated value to the local economy of the Salzburg Festival? Two points, 20 million euros either way. Puzzle some a question. The Bregenz Festival is an amazing um, festival by the lake. They have these gigantic sets um, and they uh, welcome a heck of a lot of audiences every year. What is the capacity for their theatre by the lake? Oh for two God. points, you can have 500 people either way. So the capacity for the Bregenz Festival's theatre by the lake. Two points, 500 either way. No, I've seen what's the then. And the final question. <laughs> Gleinborn loves Mozart. <laughs> In its history, how many different years have they performed The Marriage of Figaro? You can have four either way. So how many Figaro's have there been at Glyndebourne? Different productions or...? Just what, individual year? years in which it's been performed. Okay. So not the number of new productions, just the number of times it's been on the programme. Okay. Oh, gosh. I'll give you, I'll give you a clue for this one. New productions is, rough, is about six. 
Oh, wow. Oh, okay. I'm changing my answer then. So the number of years in which Figaro has been on the programme. 60 productions in their lifetime. Wow, that's amazing. And you can have four either way for two points. Do you know that the Deutsche Oper in Berlin still runs the same Major Figaro production that they had made with Fischer Discow in it? It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a very, very it's good, good production. It's good, the, the gentleman who plays the count, whoever that is, tends to get treated to wearing a shirt which still has his label in it. And hasn't been washed since <laughs> 1950 or something. Um, would anyone like any questions repeating? Otherwise, we're going to go through the answers. Ooh. So, remember, if you get it right, it's five points. If you're within the margin of error, it's two points. So mark your own sheets. We are, we're a very trusting bunch here. <laughs> the year of the first Glyndebourne Festival was... 1934. 1934. <laughs> So wow. if you had 27,000 up to 37,000, oh, no. you're going to have two points. The cost of a ticket to Eiford Arts, current production of The Elixir of Love is... £130. Two points for 110 to 150 pounds. Five points if you got it right. Number of different events at this year's Test Festival is... 32? Oh, not bad, 31. Two points for 26 to 36. The capacity of Neville Holt's new theatre is... 400. Oh, you can have not, two points for 340... It's not big, is it? It's not big. ...to 460. Two points. Two points if you've got 340 to 460. Oh, very beautiful, though. It's very nice. How far in miles is Grange Park Opera from London? 20? 35? 12? 12? 23 miles. Oh. You have two points if you had 18 to 25 miles. Not sorry, 18 to well 28 miles. Sorry, two points. <laughs> I hope it is. That's the weird. estimated value to the local economy of the Salzburg Festival is what? We've got some very different answers. Yeah. What, what did you put, Ella? Come on, tell us. I put 1.8 billion. Uh, I, put, I, put, <laughs> I, put I put 160 million. 80 million? It was 183 million oh. euros. So Gosh. if you had 163 million to 203 million euros, you can have two points. So, oh. I was so One day Copenhagen Festival. Penultimate question. The capacity of Bregenz Theatre by the Lake is... 7,000. Oh, se seven Whoever said that in the audience, congratulations. Five points to you. Gold star. If you've got 6,500 to 7,500, you can have two points. Nice. And finally... The number of times that Figaro has been on the programme at Glyndebourne. So if you know it was in 1934, you'll know how many years there's been. How many Figaro's? 31. No, really? Someone's been on the phone. It's yeah. 31. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> 31. I got 30. Wow, that's a lot of... 20, wow. 27 to 35, you can have two points. Hooray. Top up your <laughs> tally rarity, and we'll really. see... <laughs> Who the winner is. So there's a maximum of 45 <laughs> points to stake. I've got nine. Yeah, me too. Oh. I think nine is very, well played. very well respectable. Played. Well played. Um, anyone get more than 40? <laughs> more than 30? More than 20? More than 15? I don't feel anywhere near as bad now. 
More than ten. I think we know who's coming to next year's Leeds Opera Festival. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Congratulations to Ella. Well done. Did, did you get it's the Holly Clark one? You got five points for. Yeah, but I think we should disqualify ourselves for that first five. Oh, so you really got seven. I did have it on my notes. So I actually got seven, really. Recent, you know, <laughs> jenning up is absolutely fine with, with me. Uh, a massive congratulations. Well done. Um, can I say a huge thank you to our, our panellists, uh, Guy Withers, thank you very much. Thank you. Ella Marchman, thank you very much. Thank you. John Sponning, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Chapel FM. Uh, we've got two more events as part of this year's Leeds Opera Festival. Tomorrow at 7 o'clock at Leeds Town Hall, we've got a free concert about the life and career of Henry Rowley Bishop, and we'll be exploring what life was like on the Victorian operatic stage. And at 8 o'clock, we've got a new work called Musical Confusion at Leeds Town Hall, which weaves together Shakespeare's plays with the operas and musicals inspired by them. Fantastic cast of, of uh, theatre actors and opera singers. Uh, so do join us for that. Before we go, a huge thank you to Chapel FM, as always. It's been absolutely fantastic. And uh, if you're listening at home, we will see you next in September. We'll have an interview with Stuart Murphy and the usual roundup of the latest opera news. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you all very much. Please come downstairs for a cup of tea. Thank <laughs> you.